episode of Appalachian Agrist. I'm here with my co-host Rob today. How you doing, Rob? I'm doing good. How are you? Very, very well. It's me, Cody, and today we have on a third individual um, who is here to answer all the questions that we might or might not have about gardening, and he's also been my personal gardening mentor, Bob. How are you, Bob? I'm doing well. And you? Pretty good. Um, so back with another AA meeting. If you didn't catch up with us last week, you should probably go back and listen to that first because last week where we left off, we were talking all about food, agriculture, and the agencies that are related to them. And when we were discussing the local food model, we definitely touched on the significant price uh, increase you're going to see when you get down to the local food model. And rather than just throw your hands up in frustration and not get good quality food, we're going to talk about how you can make that food yourself. So we brought on Gardener Bob to talk about that, and we're going to let him introduce himself. Go ahead, Bob. Yep. Well, this is Farmer Bob. I'm sponsored by Farm Charms. And I have uh, been gardening for about 40 years. So about uh, 20 times longer than Rob and I combined. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess the first thing we would ask you is you're a brand new gardener. You want to get involved. You know nothing about it. What's the first step? Well, first of all, let's let's take a step back and and talk more about what you were discussing last week. I'm not sure that people realize that when they go to their local grocery stores, those vegetables that they're looking at are sourced from the American Southwest, California, and Mexico. And they're picked green because the transportation, during the transportation process, otherwise they'd rot along the way. So they pick them green and they pack them in carbon dioxide and they ship them to you. And oh, by the way, the poor laborers who are working those fields and picking those vegetables, those fields and those laborers don't have access to bathrooms in most cases. So they go in the field. And of course, they don't have any way to wash their hands. So here you go. What do you see every year? Recall after recall vegetables, oftentimes salad greens, sometimes other things for, for different pathogens which make people sick when they eat it and and that's the problem you know obtaining clean vegetables is not as difficult as everybody thinks especially during the normal growing season lots of times you can have access to a local farmer's market where you can meet the the grower you can talk to the grower find out where he grows his stuff 
they might, if you ask, they might even invite you to come out and see, the, see their fields and, and how they do things. And this is a great opportunity to make a new friend and to learn how to grow crops. That's, that's actually like exactly what happened to me. I went to the local, um, it's kind of like a local gardening place or club uh, in the town where I live. And I went and bought all my corn, well, all his corn, some tomatoes, because mine are done producing. And I'd much rather spend my money there. And I asked him specifically, where do you, in this case, it was, where do your tomatoes come from? And he was like about three miles west of here. And I was like, all right, that's, I'm going to buy your tomatoes. Absolutely. Now, what you buy a tomato at the grocery store, right? And you slice it open. And what's the first thing you notice? It's full of white pith. And that's an indication that that tomato was picked green and shipped green. And then it ripened um, in the truck or on the shelf. And then it was put out in the grocery store. And this is why the tomatoes you get in the grocery store taste so terrible. There's, there's no flavor to them at all. Of course, you know, as we go here, talk about this, the best solution for people is to grow as much of their own vegetables as they can. And the problem, of course, is people don't think they can do this. We don't teach that in schools anymore as they did when I was growing up. And the history teachers, of course, don't bother telling you about the victory gardens that were, were grown by everybody and his brother during World War II because all fuel and most foodstuffs were, were heavily rationed. So whatever little garden space they might have in an apartment or a townhouse, they grew things, grew things for themselves to eat. And you can still do this today. You might be a townhouse renter or a townhouse owner or live in a small house on a quarter acre or less lot. And you don't realize how much space you actually have to grow things. Yeah. So, now, so let's say I'm just an average American in a townhouse or a suburb, or I'm very limited on space because a lot of people that listen to us are pretty limited on space. How would you get started? Well, first you want to think about your space that's available. Um, you want to do a design. You sit down with PowerPoint or a pencil and a piece of paper and draw out your lot, put your house on it, your garage, if you've got one, your driveway, your sidewalks, all that stuff. And what have you got? You've probably got a balcony or a patio or a deck, and you may have more than one of those. And that's the first place you look at because you can get pots and you can put in um, mixtures of, of gardening soil and compost uh, and make your own soil and put them in these pots. And this is where you want to grow things. You can grow tomatoes, you can grow peppers, so all your salad greens, and you can do it right on your balconies, right on your porches. And it's easy to take care of. Um, and if you've got more space, let's say you, you've got a front yard and a backyard or a fenced in backyard, right? If you're in a townhouse, all of that area can be turned into in-ground gardens instead of pots. But people have to use their imagination and decide I'm going to use every square foot that I can to grow the food that I want to eat. So I don't have to buy that food from the stores, which is shipped in carbon dioxide. It's doused in pesticides. It's doused in, in um, um, fungicides, you know, to keep, keep different diseases down. And you've got all of that in your food and you really don't want to put that in your body. 
but we do it all the time. Yeah, and the fact that, I mean, we did touch on this last week. Uh, Rob and I were talking about how the average American expects uh, a tomato red in January, and it leads to this, uh, this industrial look at food, and it kind of takes us away from being so hands-on with our food. So I think it's sad that probably most people wouldn't be able to recognize what's wrong with a store tomato versus a homegrown tomato. They would think the homegrown was the one that was wrong. Exactly, exactly. And so, the other thing you have to understand is most of your vegetables have been hybridized for shipping purposes. So that's why you have tomatoes which very, with very thick skins so they can take bruising. And the same thing with lots of your other vegetables. Yeah. So, so here you are. So does is what determines in your mind whether you mentioned in-ground gardening, but Rob and I have both gone the raised bed route first. And we kind of learned that we wish we had done it the other way around, but so many push people push for raised beds. Uh, what's your opinion on the two, one versus the other? Well, raised beds have, have the advantage of you can control where things are grown. You put your raised beds in and you have paths in between them and you want to make your raised beds not so wide that you can't reach all the way across from one side. Now, this is all part of your planning process. Um, if you're going to do in-ground gardening, you have the same situation. But you've got to have paths through your garden so you can, you can maintain what you're growing. Yeah, the other thing I think I learned a lot harder than Rob did was when I did the raised bed route, I thought being able to control the the soil that I grew my produce in was going to be a grand slam. And so I got the half topsoil, half um, compost mix and just didn't test the soil and tried to grow in it. And it was really, really rough. The only beds that did really well were the ones that were fertilized with chicken manure. So I definitely had a misconception of how easy it would be to do the, the raised bed route. And now that I've gone in ground, things are growing very, very easily in comparison. Right. And everything takes a little time. Um, you have to start those raised beds, preferably the, in the fall, and then you plant them in the spring. Um, but but let's let's get down to some specifics. You know when you're looking at pots, because a lot of townhouse owners only have a deck or a patio. So you're gonna you're gonna take this pot, and the, the biggest thing you have to worry about is drainage. But you want to take a bunch of water over the bottom of the pot before you put your dirt in, um, so that you have proper drainage. Because it's the quickest way to, to to rot your food that you're trying to grow. Is by overwatering it, and it's very easy to overwater pots. Now your deck has probably also got a, a railing, and there are, are uh, trellis, not trellises. There are uh, pots that hang over the top of the deck um, on the railings. There are hanging baskets you can you can hang down, and you put different things in these these different tools. Your your bigger crops like tomatoes and salad greens. Um, cabbages, you use your bigger pots for those because they'll get bigger. Um, in your pots that are hanging off of your railing, 
that's where you would grow herbs. Um, and the herbs are like, uh, you've got your annuals, like thyme, oregano, sage, chives, and you've got your, your, pardon me, your perennials, like thyme, oregano, sage, and chives, and your annuals, like basil, cilantro, and parsley. And they grow quite well in not very good soil. They're very forgiving, um, unlike a lot of other salad greens, which, which actually require more maintenance. You can also take hanging pots, and you can plant strawberries in them. And those strawberries will hang down over the sides of that hanging pot, and you just walk up and pick them when they're ripe. And the nice thing specifically about strawberries is, you know, they produce a lot on uh, a relatively small footprint, and the fruit is light enough that if it hangs, it's not going to necessarily fall right off. So you can get a lot of strawberries from that kind of setup. Absolutely. And that's, and again, everybody loves strawberries. Of course, everybody loves tomatoes too. And there's yeah. nothing like a, a fresh tomato or a fresh, fresh green salad made of your own ingredients. Yeah. Didn't you have like fairly good success this year with tomatoes, Rob? Yeah, mine actually did, uh, did really well. Um, I, like we talked, said earlier, I went the raised garden bed route and I actually had really good success with it. I probably paid more than, you know, most people would have starting. Um, so that probably had something to do with the, the quality of the soil because where I was at, the, the in-ground just was not an option. It was, the soil was terrible, and it would take, probably even take in more money to, to get that prepped and actually usable than it would for what I paid for the, the bag stuff. But, yeah, I, I had two tomato plants, and I got quite a bit um, before I had to move, so it was a good year for tomatoes. And you really do have to experience it to – to understand what we're talking about when we're just comparing the grocery store versus your own stuff. It's, it really is quite the difference. Yeah, exactly. And I advise folks that if you have a farmer's market in your neighborhood, go and visit them and, and buy a few things and then take it home and compare it to what you're getting at the grocery store. And you'll immediately see the difference. You'll taste the difference. You'll smell the difference. Yeah. For dinner tonight, my wife and I bought, corn at the farmer's market, and we had two steaks from my uncle's uh, dairy farm that he butchers one off of every now and again, and it was just so much better than what I, I could have bought at the, the supermarket. Exactly. Um, so now after you kind of decide what you're going to do as far as hanging pots, in-ground, raised beds, um, and whatnot, how... I learned very quickly that insects are a giant pain and everyone's looking for that organic non-pesticidal uh, solution to the problem. And you've had some pretty good success that you passed along for me, but I want to, I want you to talk about it. Right. Well, the biggest problem you're going to have in with your vegetables is small sucking insects like aphids and white flies and flea beetles. Believe it or not, these, these creatures leave the herbs alone for the most part. Um, but the easiest way to get rid of those things is you either go to your local gardening store and buy what's called insecticidal soap, or you make your own. So you just take a, a quart bottle and put in a teaspoon of dish soap. Not dish soap that has the antibacterial stuff in it, just regular cheap dish soap. And you mix it, mix it in that quart of water, and you turn the leaves and spread the bottoms of the leaves, because that's where the little guys go. They're like little vampires. They suck the juices out of the plants. 
And so your plants get spots on them, uh, which are the, where the wounds are from the insects sucking on the plant. Um, and then they get kind of wilty and sick looking. And these little sucking insects also transmit diseases to the plants. So the, the cheapest and easiest thing to do is use just plain old dish soap and water. Nothing fancy, and it, and it doesn't hurt the plants. And you wash your vegetables anyway before you eat them. So anything that's on there still, you wash right off. And yeah, and the important thing that you need to remember when you're doing that is if you get a, a rainstorm, you need to go back out and reapply that because the water is going to wash that off and you're going to get your insects. <laughs> yeah. Usually you want to spray them about once a week. And these insects have their own seasons. They'll, they'll come in the late spring because that's when the, the plants are big enough to be attacked. Um, of course, the other problem you've got is slugs, nasty little creatures. And they'll munch on, every, on anything in the gardens, including your strawberries. So again, you can go to your local gardening shop, which by the way is where you get your pots and your, your gardening soil and your tools and all that stuff. But, and you can get an organic um, slug bait, which the slugs are attracted to it, and they eat it and they die. Or you can make your own. You take a, a shallow dish or a shallow bowl and you plant it in the ground and you put beer in there. Any old rot gut beer will work. And slugs are attracted to the, the scent of the, of the hops and grains that the beer was made out of. And they go into that container of beer and they drown. And then you clean them out whenever they're in there. And, uh, you know, after a good rainstorm, of course, you have to replace it. But that's the easiest way to get rid of slugs. And those, those are the two biggest problems you've got with vegetables, is slugs and the small sucking insects. Couldn't have said it any better myself, because um, I got devastated on the front half of this season by insects. And I know, Rob, you were texting me. I was texting you and we were both just trying to figure it out. Yeah. Like, those, those small insects really got me uh, in, the, in the early part of the season. But I think once we, uh, once I figured the solution out, it started working pretty good. Yeah. And going back to you, Bob, did you want to talk about the uh, tobacco juice that, well, yeah, that's, that is a, um, Okay, when you look at organics, um, in, in my youth, I uh, was trained in Oregon, and I learned how to handle uh, herbicides, pesticides, and fungicides, both the nasty chemical stuff and the organic stuff. Um, and one of the things that is considered organic is tobacco juice. Most insects will die when they're sprayed with tobacco juice. It even works against the Japanese beetles. And how I make it is I take an old gallon milk jug and I'll take some, some tobacco, either the red man or some chewing tobacco, or if you smoke cigars, you take your cigar in and you put it in there and you leave it for a couple of days until it looks like dark tea. And then you strain it into your sprayer. If it's that hand, hand quart sprayer you've got, or if you've got a one gallon sprayer, um, and you, again, you spray the plant down, especially underneath the leaves. And that will get rid of lots of insects like crickets and grasshoppers, bigger beetles, uh, caterpillars. But a lot of these, uh, when you're dealing with caterpillars and things like that, the easiest way is to just look for them and pick them off and throw them in some water. And, and throw turn them in them your chickens. Oh, yeah, if you've got chickens, but turn them into compost. So 
you said you've been gardening for 40 years. Um, obviously you've probably gotten significantly, uh, better at gardening since you first started. So what were some of the, the highlights of lessons you learned early on, or what's the biggest mistake you made when you were starting out? Um, I didn't design things right. You know, when you're designing a garden, you have to look at and say, where is the shade? Where is the sun? Uh, if a place gets sun all day long, that's not necessarily the best place to plant things. Most plants will put up with full sun, but they like part shade. So you have to have to figure out uh, what to put where. And then different plants have different heights. If you're growing them in, in uh, rows or in beds, you don't want um, a tall plant blocking the sun from the shorter plant. So you have to do that as well. And the other thing you have to look at is, well, when I was in Kentucky, we had nasty yellow clay. Fortunately, I had access to horse manure, and I mixed lots and lots of horse manure into that, that nasty soil. And after a couple of years, it was actually usable. Now in Virginia, we have brown clay, which is not as bad as the stuff in Kentucky, but it's still pretty bad. And you do the same thing. If you're gonna, if you have access to any kind of compost or you can make compost, you mix that into your soil. If not, then you have to buy it. Now, compost for the average townhouse owner or small, somebody on a small lot is, is gonna be tough for them to make. But let's think about it. In most of these places, when they mow their grass, they bag it. And grass has, has a couple of very important uses. One, you can use it as mulch around your plants. That mulch helps keep the weeds down. And in the heat of the summertime, it helps keep the moisture in the soil. So that's, that's very good. And um, there are lots of, of uh, store-bought composters that look like barrels with handles and you can you turn it every so often you can make compost out of that that's a slow process um but the thing people have to remember is gardening is an, is an education and you're always learning yeah i mean i i totally agree you you got into compost there and that's like a perfect segue into uh what i wanted to talk about in regards to compost so how are you starting your compost? Like, how, what's your compost setup? How do you start it? Um, how do you maintain it, monitor it, that sort of thing? Well, again, we're talking primarily about folks living in townhouses and on small lots. So for them to have compost, they might just want to go buy a store-bought barrel, and you put your compost in there and you rotate it on a regular basis. Um, if you don't have that and you've got a little bit of space, you could put it straight on the ground and you can uh, then cover it up with a tarp or not. In Kentucky, I took all of my grass clippings and all of my uh, leaves um, that went into the bags and I made big piles out of them and I'd have three or four of these piles as the, as the summer went along. And in about six, six to 12 months, that compost dig into the soil because it's nice and black to brown you can't tell what it is anymore. You can't tell that it was once grass or leaves. That's how you know it's ready to use. Right. Yeah. Because I know here at my house, we have a small little compost set up and we take all the kitchen, all the kitchen scraps, all the chicken eggs, everything like that. Anything that is comp compostable, 
is going in the compost pile. And once I got about two front end loaders worth on my tractor, I put that in the, the brown clay, red clay front yard I had and mixed it all up. And that's what I went in ground with. And it performed way better than what I bought at the store. Right. So right. that that's kind of the downside with compost is like Rob said, he had great luck with his garden going with the raised beds and he got good compost. I had horrible luck. I got really crappy compost and like my pH was like eight at one point. And if you don't know anything about pH, we can get into that, but um, it's, it's really non-conducive for the growth of most plants. Yes. Most plants prefer a slightly acidic soil. There are exceptions. Asparagus prefers more of an alkaline soil. So this is, again, if when you design your gardens, you have to decide what are you going to grow and where are you going to grow it. And yeah. while, you're thinking, while you're thinking about that, remember what, what is, is written in the Bible where they rotated their crops. And they didn't grow the same thing in the same place of ground every year. In fact, it's best not to grow the same thing in the same bed, but about every three to four years. Yeah, that's exactly what I was going to try and segue into is how do you manage your crop rotation? What's, uh, what are some examples of crops that you like to rotate behind or in front of one another and kind of dive into that? Yeah, it, it, again, it depends what you're, what you're growing. Things like spinach, you shouldn't grow in the same place, but about every four years. Other crops are, are uh, much more forgiving. Um, tomatoes do not like to be grown in the same place year after year because diseases build up in the soil, and then you have uh, weak and spindly-looking plants because the diseases are, are waiting for the plant. Um, so, like, say I was planting corn or something that is very yeah. heavily rich in, or takes a lot of nitrogen, and I, I grow my corn, have a successful run at it, and season's over, what am I planting behind that um, to put nitrogen back in the soil? Or what's another example that you can show, like, succession of one plant with a specific plant of following it? Exactly. Legumes, which are things like beans, put nitrogen back into the soil because they, are, they have the ability to pull nitrogen out of the air and they fix it in their roots. In fact, if you look at the roots of, be of beans, um, soybeans, green beans, black beans, red beans, you'll see little balls in their roots. And, and those, those are where the, the nitrogen is coming back out of the plant into the soil. So you can do a couple of things. With corn, um, you can plant a cover crop on it, which might be nothing more than, than uh, perennial ryegrass or annual ryegrass, and then you just till it under uh, when you get ready to plant again. And you don't plant corn, you plant something else. Or you can get a legume like a soybean or um, red clover is a great one, and plant that. And then when you're ready to use that garden bed again, you till it under and let it cook a little bit. Um, so like you till it under in March, and then you would plant in, in April or May. But that goes back to your design part. You've, you've got to figure out, so where am I living? And w w what are the seasons like? When is the last frost in the, in the spring? When is the first frost in the winter? And you have to, to be careful that you don't plant too soon 
or if you do, you have to be prepared to protect those plants from your late frosts. And that's why I think uh, very simple field expedients, you take a gallon water jug or a gallon milk jug and you cut the bottom of it off. And you put that over the top of your spinach plant or your lettuce plant and voila, instant greenhouse. Just yeah. remember to, to unscrew the top because otherwise it gets too hot in there for the plant. Yeah, that's that's why my lettuce did so well this year is you told me to do that and I had just happened, just by happenstance, put a lot of chicken manure in that bed, a lot of sawdust, organic matter, and then I tilled it up, planted my uh, my lettuce and did the little milk jug trick and I was I had lettuce coming out of my ears. Like an entire shelf of my refrigerator was lettuce. And I was trying like, I was eating lettuce three times a day. Yes. And this goes back to the design. You have to decide, you know, who are you and what's your family? Do you have two or three children or is it just you and your wife? And Because it, it does you no good to grow more than you can eat. Unless you're sharing it with your neighbors. And that's a good thing to do because then you make friends with your neighbors. Yeah. And you build that local community and, you know, that's how you start sharing each other's produce. You know, I had a bad season with this. You had a good season. We can trade. And a lot of times neighbors will just give you things for nothing because they grow so much. Yes. And And that's, that's just a testament to what you can do with a little amount of space. You don't need a huge amount of space to feed yourself, you know, at least for, a couple meals here and there. Right. And, but you also, you know, as part of this designing, you want to keep records. And I like to use PowerPoint charts. I have my garden beds all drawn out in PowerPoint and I write down uh, with the PowerPoint, what did I plant there this year? So I make sure I don't plant the same thing there next year. Yeah. All right, Bob. So I put it out on Instagram that I was going to ask some listener questions And I got about a dozen or so Rob and I are going to go through. The first one was State of Appalachia wanted to know all about starting potatoes. Okay. I grow potatoes every year. I love potatoes. Um, Here in Virginia, the best best potato to grow is called the Yukon Gold. Um, But you also have different types of of russets and whites and reds, and, and you grow what you want to grow. Potatoes like deep, loamy soil. They don't like clay. So if you're going to grow potatoes, you have to prep your soil ahead of time. I like to uh, have it nice and tilled up. And then you you put in a trench. In the bottom of that trench, I put in compost. And then on top, I put in the potatoes, eye side up, right? Uh, Now, speaking, where do you get your potatoes? You want to get high-quality potatoes from someplace like southern states. You plant them eye side up on top of that compost. I take some fireplace of wood ash and I sprinkle it on top of it because that stops the squirrels from digging them up and eating them. And then I put compost on top of the potatoes and then dirt on top of the compost. Another way to do it is to plant them much closer to the surface in a raised bed and cover them in straw. And as the potatoes pop up, you know, they start setting their green up, you add more straw because you never want your potatoes exposed to sunlight, uh, meaning the, the potato itself, not, the, not their green parts. Because if they get exposed to sunlight, you get a, a green color, a discoloration underneath the skin. And that's highly um, alkaline, and it's not good to eat at all. 
And potatoes, again, are not hard to grow. Uh, but one trick you have to, to know about potatoes is never plant potatoes in the same place except once every four to five years because they will, they will, disease will build up in the soil and you'll have what happened to the Irish during the great Irish potato famine when more than a million Irish starved to death because they were growing the same kind of potato year after year after year. And then potato blight hit them and wiped their crops out. And this is why, you know, over a million Irishmen um, left Ireland and they went to Canada and the United States and Australia. So but potatoes are quite, quite easy to grow. Do you do them in mounds or do you just do them with the trench? No mounds, no hills, no um, buckets? Hills and mounds are very good. What, what that means is as that green part, that green stalk is coming up, you pile dirt around it. And if you've got them in a row, you have uh, what looks like a small ridge. And as they get bigger, you pile on more dirt. So what happens is when disease hits your plants, uh, it falls off your potato blight diseases, and it's on the top of the soil. And then it just washes off because it's on a hill, and it washes off into the rest of your bed where it can't get at the potatoes. If you have them flat, it's quite likely that they'll get into the soil and infect your potatoes. Buckets, uh, buckets can be quite a problem because uh, with growing things in pots and buckets, drainage is always an issue. Potatoes don't mind being moist, but if they're too wet, they'll rot in the ground. Well, that's, that's a lot about potatoes. I, I was trying to comprehend all that because, I mean, you're my, you're my mentor when it comes to gardening, but, you know, there's still things that you said I, I, we've never discussed. And, you know, I've done the straw thing. I've never grown potatoes. I like my sweet potatoes, and they're doing great. Um, but I definitely do the straw thing, but I didn't plant them in, in mounds. So now I'm kind of concerned. <laughs> well, sweet potatoes are not the same. Remember, it's a totally different kind of plant. Um, the, the amusing thing about sweet potatoes is, you know, people like to eat the green parts of sweet potatoes. So do deer. One year I grew sweet potatoes in a field as, you know, not in raised beds. And the deer mowed that green stuff down as, as though they were lawnmowers. And, but the sweet potatoes came back, and by the end of the season, I had de decent sweet potatoes. So if you've got deer and rabbit, then you want to go to the store, and you want to get yourself some deer and rabbit repellent and sprinkle it around the potatoes. Uh, and there's other tricks you can use. Uh, marigolds, uh, for example, deer hate marigolds. So you can plant marigolds on top of your potatoes and all around your potatoes, and any other crop for that matter. Um, when you think about it, you know, insects have really good, good ways of finding the plant they want to infect. And if you mix things up with smelly flowers like dill, um, coriander, cilantro, right, marigolds, they get confused because they can't find what they're looking for because of all the other aromas coming up out of these flowers. That's, that's awesome. <laughs> I apologize, for my, yeah, I apologize for my dog. He's being a pain in the ass right now. Mm -hmm. um, so the next question we have, uh, it, kind of what we talked about already, but uh, living in an apartment on a very tight budget, uh, how can I start gardening with uh, a lot of shade? Well, there, there you have to look at shade-tolerant 
plants. When I was living in Kentucky, I took one side of my small house and I put a strawberry bed down one side. And that, those strawberries got not even half a day of sun and they did just fine. In fact, they produced oodles of strawberries. Um, most herbs will do well in, in part shade, uh, not so much sun. But this is where the design comes in. You have to be thinking, well, do I have any south or southwest face of windows in the house where I might grow in herbs inside the house? It all goes, that's all part of your design, looking to see where is the sun at what time of day, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. So next question was, how do you know what your soil or compost needs, like not making it too hot or not hot enough in regards to nitrogen, not actual physical temperature? Right. Well, it's a, it's a simple way. Um, dig around in it and see how many worms you got. If you've got a lot of worms, you know you've got good soil. A more complicated way is to get a soil testing kit. Yeah. I know... The only other way I know of is if my compost is too hot, which it has been, it's not enough carbon. It needs more uh, browns. It means you got too many. So when we talk, talk about compost, a lot of people like to say greens and browns. Your greens are your nitrogen givers and your browns are your carbon givers. And if you look back, I mean, what was it? Hydrogen, oxygen, and carbon make up more of soil than anything else in the soil. So... If you have a nitrogen-heavy compost, you need to be adding carbonous things, leaves, um, sawdust, uh, wood chippings, that sort of thing. Exactly, because what the nitrogen will do, it will break down those wood chips over a year or so and turn it into to, uh, good stuff in the soil, a lot of good humus. Yeah, and actually, to jumpstart my uh, my compost pile, it worked brilliantly. Um, was I actually took my tractor, took the front end loader, scooped up all the deta- decaying matter along the wood floor around my property, and that was a ton of carbon right there, right off the bat. And I was able to just start dumping a lot of greens in there, and you know, chicken manure on top, which is ultra hot. It, it went really well. Right. Now, just remember, the average townhouse owner or, or small lot may not have access to that stuff. They're gonna, they may only have access to grass and leaves. Um, it, again, when I was in Kentucky, uh, I, ha- I knew folks who had horses, and I would go in and muck out their stalls, and I would take that mixture of, of horse manure and um, sawdust, and I built whole garden beds out of it, and I let them cook over the winter, and then I used them in the spring. Yeah, another solid way. Uh, next question we have is, what is the easiest vegetable that beginners should start with? Oh, that's a tough one. Um, I'd say things like spinach. <laughs> spinach, your different lettuces and spinach are that's the exactly, easiest to grow. That's exactly what I was thinking, too. I when I was thinking about this question, I was like, well, what worked for me? And it was all the spinach, lettuce, greens. Yeah. And the other thing, you know, red radishes. Red radishes have a very short growing cycle. Uh, and they grow qu- quite easily in most soils. Yep. Now, when you, uh, 
go to start your your plants are you a seedlings or a seeds kind of guy it depends now think about it here in virginia we have a problem because it gets too hot too fast we'll have frosts in april and by july 4th weekend it's in the 90s and now your spinach and your lettuces are all going to seed they're what's called bolting so in the springtime i plant plants and i use those gallon jugs and I cover them up at night. Anytime it's going to be below 50 degrees. And it keeps the plants warm and it sort of forces them to grow. In the fall, about the 1st of August, I start planting my fall crops. And I use seeds. So, things like cabbage. Uh, like cooler weather. Also, your salad greens like cooler weather. So, I know folks who don't grow salad greens at all in the springtime. They grow them all in the fall. Now, if you, this isn't a listener question. This is my question. Um, when I started gardening and I branched out away from you and started my own garden, um, I felt like I was cheating using lettuce seedlings. And I've ever since I've really wanted to germinate my seeds indoors and then transplant them transplant them outside is that a viable option still in virginia or is it too expensive or you know well now think about the infrastructure you need if you're going to grow grow those seeds you're going to have to plant them probably in february early february you're going to need small pots to put them in um you're going to have to have some place where they're going to get enough sun otherwise they become what's called leggy right they get spindly and then they don't do well when you plant them out. If now, you plant them out, if you if you want to plant them directly in the soil, there's there's some um, some ways to help them. You take the, you take some black plastic, and you cover that soil up for a few weeks before you plant them. And that black plastic not just keeps the weeds down, but it keeps the heat in, and it absorbs the sunlight. So then, when you're ready to plant. You take the plastic off and you plant your plants and then you use the milk jugs. Perfect. Yep. Now, could you use, uh, say you didn't have access to the sunlight or didn't have a window that was facing the right direction. Could you use a standard grow light used in like aquaponics, you think? Yes. Yeah, you can. Again, you're talking more infrastructure and more costs, but you can buy there's lots and lots of high quality grow lights but you have to have someplace like a table in your house somewhere to put the plants. And then you've got to put the, the grow light that it's close enough to the plants to actually do some good. And as they get bigger, you have to be able to raise the grow light. So yeah, these work, but they also are, are more labor intensive and more space intensive. Yep. You can grow a lot of things with that. Uh, we don't really have this issue in Virginia, uh, but the next question we got was, I live in a desert. Help. <laughs> uh, <laughs> that well, poor guy. Yeah. That's, uh... So this is where you look at your house and you say, so let's say my house is facing north or south, whatever. The sun will not be hitting all four sides of the house with the same intensity. So you find the part where it's the least intense sunlight and that's where you build your garden beds. And the other thing you can do is you can put awnings over the top of it. You can make them out of old sheets and things. 
You have to be careful because of wind and rain will tear them up. But you can actually make artificial shade to protect your plants. And anybody who knows me knows I'm a huge advocate for collecting rainwater. And I'd never thought about a shade structure. But if you had a shade structure and you live in a desert, I would assume you want to make use of that rain for as long as possible. So if you can collect, you know, it's a couple inches of rain on a thousand square foot, you know, that's over 1800 gallons of water. So. Absolutely. And people, people take their rain gutters and they let it run off into the grass. Now in the Southwest, when it rains, it really rains. So if you've got, if you want to spend the money and get yourself one of those plastic 55 gallon drums, you can, hook some of those up to your rain gutters. And then when the rains do come uh, and they're quite seasonal, then you can fill up those, those barrels and you use that water later on. But the other problem you've got in the Southwest, unless you're near a river, your soil is very sandy. So you have to add a lot of humus to it. Otherwise you can't get anything to grow. Yeah. It's, it's a totally different ball game. I've, I've never really considered it because I take what we have for granted and I complain about clay. Um, So next question would be, uh, do you practice? Well, I guess this was meant for me, but I'd like your input too. It was, do you practice polyculture gardening? And for me, yes. Um, I think monoculture is a, is a very poor model. um, Especially if you're not integrating crop rotation, but not only that, planting the same thing is unnatural. Um, plants were meant to coexist for the most part, and there's a reason that crop rotation works. And, uh, you know, I think monoculture depletes the soil of its resources, leading to uh, the need of artificial um, fertilizers, and it brings the same species of insects around, and it just perpetuates the same problem. So I am all about polyculture gardening so exactly yeah so go ahead go ahead Bob. exactly but that's if you do use a lot of chemical fertilizers and you go digging around in the soil you're not going to find many worms because that chemical fertilizer will kill your worms and then your soil is not so good because those worms aerate the soil they stop the soil from getting compressed you know they leave tunnels in the soil and when it rains those tunnels fill up with water and that's how you keep um moisture in your soil during the hot summertime here in Virginia, that and mulching your plants. Yeah. And uh, if you look, worm population is directly related to soil health. Um, when we talk about over tillage and monoculture, they're tilling artificial fertilizer and because they've destroyed, they're destroying the habitat simultaneously. So it's a double edged sword. You use fertilizer leads to more fertilizer, leads to more fertilizer. So I'm all in with polyculture companion gardening. I, lo- I love that concept. Yeah. There's, well, speaking of companion planting, there's lots of plants that like to grow together. Things like carrots and tomatoes. They grow side by side and they seem to like each other. Yeah. And this year I used sunflowers as a support system for my beans. Um, yes. You know, and just, this again now, let's, let's talk, talk about Talk about infrastructure for a minute. If you're going to have climbers like peas and beans, that means you have to have something for them to climb on. And you got to buy that. Or you have to build it. Or you use sunflowers and you grow it. 
Yeah. And you can get a whole pack of sunflower seeds for like a buck. Yep. So they grow up the sunflowers? Exactly. Wow. Now let's go back in time. Let's think of let's think of the people who lived here before um, all the white folks came from Europe. The Native Americans were pretty sharp because they had to survive on this land. They would grow corn, and corn sucks the nutrients out of the soil. So around the corn, they would plant beans, and the beans would climb the corn stalks. And oh, by the way, beans were putting in the nitrogen that the corn needed to grow. So. Again, companion planting. Interesting. Uh, so I think we kind of touched on this already, but if you just want to hit it one more time, as far as growing things for pest management, I'm guessing they're talking about uh, bigger pests like deer and, and squirrel and stuff like that, and, and not so much bugs, but what kind of things can you grow to, to kind of deter pests? Well, again, this is what I suggested earlier. When, when I grow garden beds, I'll plant, I'll plant dill seeds everywhere. I mean, dill grows all over our property because I let the stuff go wild and reseed itself. And when I want, uh, when I want some dill in a, in a carrot bed or in a tomato bed, I'll take, take the dill seeds and I'll plant them right there. Uh, dill works, marigolds work. Uh, those are my two favorites. Now, this one is my question, just because of what you said. Um, there were no more listener questions, but you were talking about seeds, and we never mentioned it. Right now, you know, it's, it's all the hype to talk about GMO seeds, and a lot of people don't want GMO seeds. What are some reputable seed companies that you would recommend looking at? Well, when you, when you go to the store and you look at a package of seed, if it's GMO, it's going to say it's GMO. But the other thing you have to watch out for are hybrids. So to make a better tomato, they'll take what they did was they took tomatoes that had thicker skins and they, they cross-bred them, cross-pollinated them with prolific producers. And that's how we got the big boys and the better boys kind of, of uh, tomatoes. The problem is when you save the seeds from those hybrid plants, from those they're not necessarily going to sprout. You want to buy what they call heirloom seeds. Um, and these, you can find these in, in, uh, at Southern States, Lowe's, Home Depot, your local gardening store. If you want, you can go online and find gardening catalogs. But you want to shy away from anything that's not um, heirloom. And you absolutely don't want to get hybrids unless you understand that you're going to have to buy seeds year after year and you're not going to be able to harvest seeds. Yeah, and that's something uh, I was reading a book. I wish I could remember the author's name. I can't remember her name. Um, I'll put it in the show notes in a link to the book. But she was talking about manually pollinating and really being careful about maintaining the species that she was growing. Right. And it sounds like what she was doing was growing heirlooms. You, let's go back to potatoes. You know, I talked about three, three kinds of potatoes, your basic white potatoes, your basic red potatoes, and then your yellow potatoes, the Yukon Golds. When you look at potatoes, when they first found them in the Andes, they were purple. 
And you can still buy those if you want to. You have to get them out of the gardening catalog. But there are so many different kinds of potatoes, so many different kinds of plants. The monocultures we use now for, for wheat and corn and soybean and things like that are the reasons why we have so many issues with bugs. Because they, they go after that particular plant and they like that plant. Where if you've mixed, you, you change the plant that you're growing or the, the type of potato or soybean that you're growing, the bugs may not like those so well. Yeah, thanks Monsanto. Um... But anyway, uh, the last thing I wanted that we mentioned that I, I wanted you to hit on is you talked about frost dates and growing zones. Can you just kind of let everybody know what those are and where they can find theirs? Yeah, you can get that from the National Weather Service. Um, and, and it'll tell you the, the mean last frost for a given area and the mean first frost. And this is where, again, I use all sorts of little tricks. I use the milk jugs. Um, in the in the fall, if I, if it's going to get too cold, I have old sheets and pillowcases that I've opened up, you know, torn the seams open, and I'll lay them on the plants to keep the frost off. And you can you can buy yourself a couple of extra weeks of growing season in the fall, and you can buy yourself a couple of weeks in the spring with these little tricks. In uh, in Kentucky, I had a corn patch, and I grew super sweet corn. And I would cover it in this in the early spring with black plastic. And when the soil was warm, I would soak my corn seeds in water and then I'd plant them. And then I'd harvest them. And I'd till that soil up and I'd add a whole bunch of horse manure and I'd get a second crop. So I got two crops of corn in one summer. Hmm. Is there anything you wanted to ask in particular, Rob? Uh no, nothing I can think of. That's just a lot of good information. I got to go back and write some of this stuff down. <laughs> yeah. Well, there, there are a lot of good books on organic gardening and on uh, pasturing that, that uh, they're not very expensive and they have a wealth of, wealth of information in it. I'll yeah. have to check those out. Yeah, if you send me a list, I'll put them in the show notes so people can find them. Okay. Well, some of the books I have are quite old and, and the authors have passed on, but uh, the, their mantle has been picked up, you know, because I'm old enough to wear organic gardening when it started in the 60s. Uh, these folks were, were the pioneers in the United States and they have, their work has been picked up by other people. So the books are out there. Yeah. The old books are the good books, though. Those are the ones people, people need. <laughs> Yeah. Right. So, well, I'm going to open it up to you, Bob. If you uh, if you want to share anything else that you know is on your mind or you think is important, you know, now is now is your time. Right. Well, the key for folks is when you're thinking about what to plant, think about what do you eat, what do you like to eat, and that's what you want to try to plant. You know, with things like tomatoes, and I talk about heirlooms. We'll drop some names. The best tomatoes, in my opinion, are, are the Mortgage Lifter, the Brandy Wine, and the Tifton Mennonite. And these are very old tomatoes. They're very thin skin. They don't transport well at all, which is why you don't find them in the grocery store. But they are the biggest, most flavorful tomatoes. It's not unusual to have a pound tomato. Yeah. Man, that sounds... Yep. I fell in love with tomatoes this year. I really did. Uh, before this year, really, I 
wasn't a big fan because I always had store-bought tomatoes and I grew my own and I just fell in love with the taste. I, I put them on everything now. Yeah. And the other thing you want to think about is planting in waves because you don't want everything to come do at once because then what do you do? You can't eat it all. Uh, you have to think about how are you going to store that if you can store it. You can blanch spinach and freeze it. You can turn tomatoes into sauce. Um, lots of things. Uh, but, but lettuces, uh, not so much. Cabbage, yeah. of course, you can turn into sauerkraut and, and other things like that. But you, ha you have to really think about not growing more than you can eat or give away. And that is the perfect note to end on because that is exactly what we're covering next week is how to preserve your crops and your harvest. So, um, Bob, thank you for coming on. Uh, you've been a blessing to my garden and I thought it was only fair to try and share you with everyone else. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, farmer Bob. Thank you, Bob. My pleasure. All right. Till next time, guys. Bye -bye.